Right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Me, Myself and Hopefully You podcast. I'm your host, Tariq, a 19-year-old university student currently experiencing a midlife crisis as he has no idea what he wants to do with his life. So rather than see a career advisor or a therapist, I decided to start a podcast where I invite guests from an array of backgrounds to tell me their story. And whilst finding out about them, hopefully I can find out more about myself too. So if you can relate, or maybe you just want to see where I end up, join me every Sunday right here. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, how are we all doing this week? Um, If you're not doing so great, or if you're doing amazingly well, then have I got a podcast episode for you today. Um, Between the years of 2008 to 2012, a piracy crisis was taking place in and around Somalia. This was where pirates were attacking big oil tanks, taking over the ship, holding the crew members on board as hostages until the owner of the oil tank paid an extremely high ransom. Uh, Now, sometimes the insurance companies would pay this out and the crew members would get home safely. However, a lot of the time, these ships did not have insurance and thus there was no one who could pay the ransom, leaving crew members as hostages for years on end, being tortured, starved and abused. My guest today was involved in helping save 191 hostages, where he would often develop a plan and negotiate first-hand with these pirates. In this crazy episode, we focus on a ship whose crew members were held for four years and how, with the help of his small team, he managed to save them all whilst he was in his 60s and in the middle of which he suffered a heart attack. Uh, We discussed the entire journey from start to finish, so get your headphones plugged in real comfy because without further ado, my guest at this time is the amazing, the inspiring, the incredible Mr. John Steed. So, John, I want to start off with some quick fire questions just to get to know you a bit more, um, a little bit better. My first quick fire question is, what is the last thing on your camera roll? Um, That's a good question. Um, The last thing on my camera roll um, is a picture of the Helford River, um, which is roughly where I live. Um, And... Uh, some of the people who, who have heard my pirate stories, I, you know, I always tell them that there are a lot more pirates in Cornwall um, and the Helford River and Frenchman's Creek, you know, which features in a novel by Daphne du Maurier um, is all about pirates um, in Cornwall. So that was the last picture on my my camera. <laughs> all right. Well, that, that is fitting for what we're going to eventually uh, uh, talk about. Hopefully uh, you mentioned pirates. We're definitely going to get into that later on. Um, but before that, another quick fire question. Who would you consider as, if you had to just pick one, who would you consider as a role model in your life? It's probably somebody you guys have never heard of, um, but uh, he's called Ambassador Augustine Mahiga, um, and um, he's from Tanzania. Um, He was Tanzania's representative on the UN Security Council, and he was my boss for a while in the UN. Um, Fantastic guy massive amount of diplomatic experience and taught me a lot you know I've been a soldier all my life and I'm not very diplomatic so uh, taught me a lot about being diplomatic oh why would you sort of pick him is it because of sort of his experience and the professionalism is that why you pick him as as your sort of role model yeah experience um uh, the way he deal you know way sadly he he was uh, he's just died because uh, um uh, of covid um but he was um you know 
how he dealt with people was, you know, a real experience to somebody like me coming from a military background. Hmm. All right. Um, well, hopefully we'll get to talk about him later on as well then. Uh, my final quick fire question is, uh, if there was a house fire, God forbid, uh, but everyone made it out, right? Everyone, every cat, every person in the house, they made it out alive. Um, and you have your phone and your laptop with you because everyone carries their phone and laptop with them. But you could only keep one item and save one item. What would that item be? <laughs> oh my. Um, um, I, um, that's a really difficult question. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people always struggle with this one. They start looking around the house. Yeah, would, I, 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 yeah exactly. Um, I would have said my laptop because my entire life is sitting yeah. in my sitting in my in my in my laptop. Probably a photograph album because yeah, you know, the memories you can't you can't recreate. Yeah, no, I, a lot of people say that because I, 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 a lot of people are starting to say phone and laptop to the answer. I was like, you know what, I'm going to take those options away because everyone's saying phone and laptop. Instead, let yeah. me see, now everyone's saying photo album. So I might actually in the future take that option away as well, uh, <laughs> just to make it a little bit more, a little bit more different. But I mean, yeah. I, I don't blame you for pick, uh, choosing a photo, a photo album because um, you have led a, a very interesting life. Um, but before we sort of get into uh, the questions, could you sort of uh, give us a quick introduce, uh, introduction to yourself? Um, well, uh, my name's John Steed. I was, um, I was born in Cornwall in England. Um, I've spent my, most of my entire life um, in the military. I joined at uh, just over the age of 17 and I retired um, when I was uh, 55, so that's most most of my life I've been in the in the military. Um, I've had some fantastic jobs. I've been all, all over the world, um, and some great things that you know I'm I'm quite proud of. Um, I'm married. I have um, I have uh, I have uh, children, um, and um, you know I'm looking forward to you know phase two of my life and getting on with doing you know doing other things uh, so yeah that's me brilliant i mean i'm surprised i see everyone's always humble when i ask that question they don't actually talk about or they don't mention some of the amazing stories or like a little bit here and there or just like a little introduction um of their amazing stories um i want to start off first with sort of you going into the british army you said yourself that you've spent most of your life in the british army um why did you sort of why did you sign up well, I, I was born here by the sea. You know, if you could look out of my window, you'd see sea on, on three sides. My mum was um, in the Rens, the Women's Navy, during the, during the war. I, I sail and do everything on boats, so I wanted to join the Navy. Um, joining the Army was not, um, you know, was not my priority. I wanted to join the Navy. But I'm colorblind, and so that bars you from service in the, in the Navy. So, um, so I had, to, you know, I joined, I joined the army, um, and uh, in the army, I joined the the Royal Corps of Signals, uh, which the army's communicators, which is a bit ironic given that I'm colorblind, and um, you know, signaling and wiring and stuff all requires you to know know your colors. Um, but yeah, that's why I joined the army. I had to because I couldn't join the navy. Don't tell anybody I said this in the <laughs> army, please. I joined just because I had to, I couldn't join that one, so I just went second best. Might as well go with you lot. Well, I'm surprised they actually let you join the army if you're colorblind as well. To be honest, um, well, you know, worse still, you know, I, somewhere along the the line, um, you know, I like I, I like to learn to do things. So uh, you know, I have a 
a yacht master's certificate for sailing. Um, and I, I also learned to fly um, as you know something different. I, I was living up in Newcastle um, and uh, in the unit I had was on an old airbase. Um, and so I, I went to the local flying club and, 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 and learned to fly. One of the prerequisites was, you know, a lot of detailed analysis of my colorblind status, because, um, you know, you'll note when you land on, a, on an airfield, you'll notice there are boxes either side and it's either red or green, um, you know, determines uh, whether your height. So um, being red, uh, green, colorblind was not exactly an advantage. Um, um, apparently my colorblindness isn't too bad, so, you know, I got my I got my flying license, but you know, colorblindness has been a an interesting feature of, of, of life. Yeah, well, what's it like to fly, John? I've always wanted I, I really want to know how to, but it's so expensive. I hope one day I can learn. Um well, you know, like you know, look like a lot of universities and um and um and have have flying clubs um and um even uh, my daughter Faith is here with me. Learned to fly at a school in Kenya, um, and we—it's uh, great. You know, it's like a whole different world. You get off the ground and you're—you're up there, and you know, there's only you who can control it. When you're in control of a plane, it's all up to you. Um, whatever goes right and goes wrong is entirely down to you. So it's. Um, it's an amazing experience. Um, I decided I wasn't a very good pilot, um, <laughs> but you know it was a practical thing. I you know lived up. I was living in Newcastle. My home is in Cornwall. Um, you know, it's All quite right. a long way. So maybe it's better. You know, better than driving. Um, my wife didn't think selling the family car and um, you know flying was such a great idea. But um, there you I go. think it's a brilliant idea. That is brilliant. You'll never have to deal with traffic again. Well, you know how you know how most people have you know booster seats in the back of their car for their kids. Yeah, yeah. I had booster seats in the back of a plane. Oh wow! <laughs> I didn't even know you got you can have those that sort of stuff. No, they were they were for a car. I just stuck oh, them right. in the back of the plane. Uh, <laughs> oh, so you just whacked them on the, uh, on the back and thought, yeah, that's yeah. That, that should be safe. Yeah, why not put a baby in the back? It's all right. Happy days. Um, so let's talk a bit more about your sort of uh, uh, army life before we get into um. Uh, the the pirates or the, the 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 encounter you had with pirates. Um, what what was your sort? Of, how would you sort of describe your life in the army? What were sort of some of the ups? What were some some of the downs? Um, uh, yeah, what sort of experiences do you have? How would you describe it? Well, you know, um, you know, I was an officer, um, and um, I went to the the military academy at Sandhurst um, and trained trained as an officer, um, and you. Uh, you you learn very quickly that um, you know that the army is all about and being an officer is all about leadership and um, and leading guys guys and girls um, is a huge uh, a huge privilege um, you know where where people look to you for the answer look for you to know what to do when things are bad or difficult um, and being in that in that that sort of position is a you know massive privilege uh, and and throughout your army career you know you start in small very small units and you know uh, right up to commanding a regiment i commanded a regiment in liverpool um a royal signals regiment in liverpool uh, with a squadron in manchester by the way um and um uh, uh you know being in charge you know it, it, first of all is a massive privilege but um huge responsibility too um you know anybody will tell you on operations when you're you're when 
when you're in charge, um, not only are you, you know, you're worrying about the tactical situation and, and what you have to do on the ground, um, but massive responsibility because all of these people with you, you know, you're, in, you're responsible for them, you're responsible for their lives and everything that happens to them. So yeah, um, great responsibility, but, um, you know, something I, you know, don't regret at all and, and, and enjoyed enormously. Oh, wow. Uh, forgive my ignorance, John, but when I think of sort of army and being in the army, I'm thinking, you know, you got a gun, you're shooting people, you're going to other countries, you know, you're, you're taking on the bad guys and whatever. Is how sort of uh, good of an analysis is that? Am I right in thinking that or people right in thinking that or is that just completely not what the army is about? Is it more about get, being ready to fight rather than actually fighting? You know, a peacetime army. Um... Most of the time, you don't you know you don't get to do any fighting, um, and you know certainly in the bulk of my 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 time in the army, it was a peacetime army. Um, you know, when I joined, we were the Cold War was still going on. Um, and I spent spent a lot of my time in Germany. Um, you know, sitting in Germany, waiting for the Russians uh, um, to come over the border uh, and defending against that. That's what the bulk of the British Army did. You know, it's only in recent years where there have been a lot of operations um, um, overseas that the Army's been involved in um, that, you know, changes the, the nature of, um, of being in the Army. Um, but you know, it's about being prepared. It's about training, um, and um, and being ready. Um, and you know, in in more recent years, um, the army has had to um, you know be ready and has fought um, you know all over the world, but particularly in the, you know in the Middle East. Do you ever sort of truly feel like you're ready? If if someone if something happens, do you ever think we're ready? My team is ready. Or is that something that you, you, you can never feel until you're actually in the midst of it all? Well, if you weren't ready, you wouldn't send them. Um, okay. You know, send, sending people who are not ready to war is, you know, is, you know just not acceptable. Um, you know, and you as the commander of a, of a unit, whatever size unit, it's your job to make damn sure you're, that your, your unit is absolutely ready. Um, and it's up to you. And what does that sort of... Are you so? Are you sort of going through the ranks first? So, like, you're you you've got an officer that you sort of uh, uh, that you're subordinate to. Then you became an officer, and now you've got your own group. Are you sort of teaching them and uh, and teaching them to be ready? And how are you teaching them um, those sort of skills to be ready for anything that might happen? Um, well, you know, a lot of it comes from experience. So, um, you know, the, the guys who are o o over you are, you know, much more experienced than you and pass on on that experience. Um, but, the, you know, British Army training is, you know, second to none. Um, you know, the British Army has been doing this sort of thing for hundreds and hundreds of years and it is, is, is very good at it. Um, but being ready um, isn't just about the training that you do. It's also about having the right and the best equipment 
um, and, and you know the right leadership. So um, you know there are all sorts of things that determine ready. But units go through readiness test, tests uh, to make sure that they're ready. Sort of, you know advanced training where where you're training with um, live rounds and um, you know in 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 scenarios and and training areas like Kenya um, where you know you can train in much more realistic uh, conditions. So I was the UK's defense advisor in Kenya, and you know, we, um, we provided you know, very good realistic training um, in, in Kenya that would simulated some of these um, field conditions. So, yeah, you, so you mentioned that um, uh, you are UK's defense advisor in Kenya. Um, so who are you, are you advising? Who are you actually advising there? So you're working on, are you working on behalf of, I don't understand the, the role of you. Uh, yeah, I don't understand. Could you just explain that? Well, uh, um, well, think about, you know, think about a country's ambassador. So, you know, yeah. the British ambassador in Kenya or high commissioner in this case, um, you're like the military equivalent. So you're advising the British government about um, about conditions in Kenya and military scenarios in the in the region. I didn't just cover Kenya; I covered uh, Tanzania, Seychelles, Eritrea, and Somalia. Um, so you're advising the British government about you know what's happening in the region and the readiness of the forces, those forces in the and the region. Um, you're uh, assisting those countries too um, with support from the British government and from the British military and uh, training provided to those countries to help them um, respond and to be able to cope with things that they've got going on in their in their region better. So it, it sort of goes both ways. You're helping the countries that you're there to support, but you're also advising the British government uh, on what's happening in, in that region. Was there sort of any period where, um, I know you said that you were sort of, uh, when, you were, when you were in the British army itself, uh, as, a, as a peacetime soldier, you were, you were uh, and during the Cold War, you were waiting uh, sort of um, for the, Soviet Union to come over in Germany, um, uh, and, and, and just in case something would happen, was there any sort of period, uh, any time in your life uh, where something did happen, and you did have to start, um, uh, well, when you when you did have to start using weaponry, and it was no longer a peacetime army? Um, well, in, in in my case, um, I, I I've been in a number of operational situations, maybe. Um, the best one is um, the best example. Um, the uh, the Western Sahara, the Spanish the Spanish Western Sahara. Um, I was uh, I I went there um, to monitor the ceasefire between the Polisario uh, and Morocco um, and and oversee the ceasefire agreement in the Western Sahara. And whilst there is a ceasefire in place. Um, uh, there was still the potential for hostilities. There was still a lot of military hardware lying around. And, um, you know, on day one, we walked into a minefield. Um, so all of that training, uh, you know, came came to the fore, you know, in an instant on day one. Um, and, uh, you know, it was very much, you know, a, a very dangerous situation. Um, and uh, six months in the desert um, was not the greatest of fun. Um, but uh, you know, very interesting experience that went from a sort of peacekeeping scenario um, to to something a bit more um, in, in in an instant. 
Um, but you know that sort of thing. That sort of thing hap happens. Um, another example: uh, I was doing something very similar. I keep getting these strange jobs, but I, I was doing something similar to overseeing, monitoring the ceasefire between um, North and South Sudan um, uh, before Sudan became um, a country in its own right. Um, and our job was to oversee the ceasefire uh, and fly in and investigate any. Um, breaches of the ceasefire. One day we got off our plane, landed on somewhere where there had been some horrendous um, activity, burning of villages and potentially uh, killing of civilians. Um, and you now I got off the plane in my usual British Army fashion and marched up to the guy I thought was in charge, um, where he promptly smacked me in the mouth with a rifle butt. Um, and I went down like a, you know, like a de deck of cards um, with blood and stuff every everywhere and no teeth. Um, uh, so the guy who did this was, you know, immediately set upon by the rest of my my team who, you know, are actually from from his own country. Um, and that, you know, this guy had done something to their to their leader and promptly flown back to Nairobi and given a new set of teeth. I have great teeth. Thanks very much. <laughs> oh, so, 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 yeah, so really you should be thanking him then. He's, he's, yeah. he's allowed so to have a great but it shows you these situations change um, very, very, very quickly. When you think there's a peaceful um, scenario, it can change um, on an instant, um, particularly so, these, these these sort of places where there's been conflict. So did you think that that guy was uh, responsible for it and that's why you went up to him? Or was he, or, and was he not actually responsible for it and you... Yeah. Wrongly assumed. Well, I think his, you know, the, the side that he represented uh, had been involved in the in in in, in atrocities, and uh, therefore the last thing they wanted was a bunch of um, international monitors um, coming and seeing what they'd done. Do you think it made he smacked me with the with the end of the rifle, and he didn't, you know, with the sharp end, and, and you know, put a round through me? So you know, I was probably lucky to get away with my teeth. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, you had your guys back to you, bro. They were probably like, wait, what are you doing? They probably started they were aiming their guns at him or whatever, or something like that. Oh, yeah, but, um, and of course, we were unarmed observers, so we had no, uh, no, no uh, ability to defend ourselves. Oh, so you had no, you had no weapons up there. Isn't that just like, uh, when you, when you're in that position, aren't you just thinking, we, we should really actually have, guns we should why do we not have guns because the thing is if someone shoots you you can't do anything about it yeah exactly um but you know you need to appear to be neutral and uh you know you're not taking sides you're not there to be part of the conflict so you're projecting this neutral neutral image so um but it can be a bit dangerous yeah how what's going through your sort of mind when you're like when you have no gun you're, you're literally just like open essentially for shooting from from either side and you're just what, what's going through your mind there? Like, how are you sort of trying to stay composed um, in that situation? You know, it's tense, you know, North, South Sudan, for example, it's a tense situation. Anything could happen at any moment. You mentioned before you had a minefield on the first day. Like, what's going through your mind, or, you know, when, you, when you're just walking around, literally ready, or, or, you know, I don't even know what the word is. Like, you just, it's like you're just saying, shoot me, because you've got nothing on you. Well, you know, it's um, you know, you're you well, you're using the, the the force of you know your fantastic personality to try and hope you know hope that they're not going to do anything like that. But you are pretty defenseless, and you feel feel quite vulnerable at times. Um, you know, we'll talk in, in a minute about some of the piracy things, but you know, very similar situation where I've you know landed on an airstrip to pick up hostages, 
and you've got absolutely nothing. And you, you know, the plane lands and you can see all these technicals, you know, vehicles with heavy machine guns on the back around the, the airstrip. Uh, and you think, oh my God, you know, um, you know, is this going to be okay? Right. Um, and, I mean, and of course you've got people, you've got people who you're responsible with you. It's not, you know, it's not you just on your own. And, um, you know, you've got the air crew that come with you and all these, everybody, and you're worried about, you know, you're worried about them as well. So, I mean, uh, I mean, that was just sort of a snippet of your sort of career in the British Army and then as UK Defence Advisor. Um, but, I mean, something even more crazy ended up happening in your life. You sort of talked about how you don't know how you got these crazy jobs. Well, this one you actually took up on yourself, didn't you? This one in uh, between 2008 and 2012, believe, when the Somali piracy crisis happened, you decided um, to take it on. Could you explain to us what, what, what that was, what had happened? You probably, I mean, everybody knows heard about Somali piracy, and um, and you know what most people know is that the pirates come along, you know, these little skinny guys in small boats, and they attack a ma attack a massive oil tanker, and they scramble on board and hold the oil tanker for for hostage and for ransom, and usually um, the oil tanker is insured, and um, the insurance company negotiates and pays up, um, and they drop. You know, ten million dollars, you know, by parachute, and um, um, and then the pirates release the ship, and everybody goes away happy. Um, that's the usual scenario. That's what happened in you know nine cases out of ten um, in in off the coast of Somalia. But in the odder case, where sometimes it was a less scrupulous ship owner, he hadn't got insurance um, and hadn't got anything to negotiate with, um, and yet the pirates saw a ship and thought, well, they were going to get money, and, and, and they didn't. So these guys gradually became forgotten, got left behind. Sometimes they were taken ashore um, and, uh, and, and held, uh, uh, but still the owner had no money. And sadly, um, you know, in this modern era, most of the crew tended to be from Southeast Asia, um, um, with families who've got absolutely nothing. That's why the guys were at sea trying to earn money for their, their families back at home. Uh, they got nothing to, to bargain with. Um, and the pirates would get more and more frustrated and more and more violent. Uh, and these poor guys were just left to rot and not, you know, months as, as normal with some of the, the big ships where the, there was money. Years went by and these guys were just left to rot in, in, in the desert. Um, and I was the I was the military advisor at the time to the UN in Somalia and um, decided, well, you know, somebody had to do something uh, to try and resolve this. So with the support of uh, the guy I mentioned to you in your very first question, Ambassador Augustine Mahiga, uh, who supported me in this, um, I tried to see if there was something we could do. And initially, I never thought about ransoms or paying. I thought we you know using all these sort of negotiation te te techniques that we've talked about, um, you know, that I would be able to negotiate and through my good contacts in government in Somalia and in the various militia and so on, I'd be able to negotiate them out and get them free. But that didn't work. That didn't happen. Um, it was always going to take money, and, and that was a bit difficult for the UN. So, um, you know, we formed another partnership uh, with uh, with some other guys, and uh, who did want who were going to help on a pro bono basis. And we started to try and negotiate for these people. That's that's how it started. Yeah. So, uh, so were you the sort of first 
person that was really uh, 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 trying to attempt to sort of save these guys? Uh, or did you join a group that was already trying to do it? Because I know in the documentary, um, you had the, the you had uh, Leslie Edwards, who was, a, who, was, who was a negotiator. Did you bring him on or was he already on? And, or, and was there, and, and the ambassador as well, was he already on the case or, or had, had everyone pretty much just dismissed it and you went, right, no, we need to do something about it? it, it, it sadly, it started with me because there was nobody else doing anything about it. Leslie Edwards was a profes professional negotiator um, and, you know, had done some of these big ships where there was, you know, ransoms paid and paid by the insurance company. Um, so uh, it started with me, and I, I tried to negotiate with uh, with some of these uh, pirates, and um, it became very obvious they wanted money. I didn't have the money; the little money that I was offered um, was was not enough. Um, and there came a stage where I was, you know, getting out of my depth. So we took on. Uh, these other partners, Leslie Edwards, um, a firm of lawyers in in in, in London, um, and we you know we did it as a team team effort, and thank God that this team effort's been pretty successful up until now. Yeah, I'm, I'm, it's an incredible story, and I, I recommend everyone to check out the uh, the documentary that I watched. Uh, it it was fascinating. Although I do have some questions about the documentary because uh, I, I feel I feel like it missed bits out based on the research I did. But then also the documentary, it did miss bits. I don't know. Maybe I maybe I've gotten confused. But we'll get into that. Um, so, you, what was the sort of initial? You mentioned ransoms and you couldn't pay for it. What was the initial asking price that they were that they wanted? Well, the case. I mean, the, you know, the, we did lots of cases, and some were you know extremely successful, and, and you know didn't really attract any attention. You know, the the one that attracted attention and is the sub main subject of Colin Freeman's book. Um, it was a, a ship called the Albedo, and the Albedo was one of these ships where the owner didn't have insurance, um, and the crew, um, the crew were were held on this ship. The, the Pakistani element of the crew were ransomed by their ransomed by their families and left everybody else behind. Um, so the guys who were left behind, they were then tortured quite badly. One of one was shot and killed, um, and. Uh, the ship was in a pretty poor condition and eventually the ship sank and despite all my pleas to the navies and other people around um you know nobody came to these guys rescue and they had to jump into the sea on a very stormy night um some of them most of them were rescued um, a lot of the pirates died as well but um uh, and they were pulled pulled out of the sea by some very heroic crewmen from another ship that had been pirated called the Naham Three. Um, and um, you know, we 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 they they were taken to safety and then um, and then were taken ashore, uh, which you know whereupon we had this long project uh, protracted um, negotiation uh, to to get them get them out and get them free. So that 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 second ship wasn't mentioned in the documentary, was it? uh can't remember um i don't think it was this is what i was confused about right because um i bet my research like it sort of went a similar route to what my research my, what what i researched what that was saying but then the documentary yeah no because obviously you mentioned that other ship i don't think that other ship was mentioned the naham three definitely was that was the sort of main bit about it so what so so the, just to sort of paint the picture there were two pirated ships one was um uh, one what ended up sinking is that right? Yeah. And then the other one 
and then you said so crew members from the other one ended up saving yeah. the other pirate. Um, the one was um, uh, so the the Albedo was a uh, commercial container ship uh, that had been taken by the pirates um, and was being held close to the Somali coast, and then tied astern of it, tied behind it, was um, this Taiwanese large Taiwanese fishing vessel, um, also held by pirates from the same clan and the same sort oh, of group. Okay, okay. So they were they were tied to, tied together. When the Albedo sank. Um, it was still attached to this Taiwanese fishing boat, and it was the crew from the Taiwanese fishing boat, the Na Naham Three, that helped rescue those that survived um, off the Albedo when it when it sank. So um, and, and pulled them pulled them out of the water. So were they forced to by the pirates that were on the? No, no they did it because they did it because you know these guys were. It wasn't just the the hostages that jumped into the water. All the pirates jumped into the water as well, and. and Several of them died as died, died as well that night. Um, wow. Interestingly, on the back of this uh, on the back of this Taiwanese fishing boat as well was an American hostage uh, who'd been kidnapped on land, and he was being hidden on the on the back of this fishing boat. Um, an American journalist, uh, and uh, so he was hidden out of the way of prying satellite eyes um, on the back of the ship. So there was quite a lot going on on this, um, this fishing vessel, the, the Naham three, but, um, you know, after we'd negotiated the Albedo and got the crew free, um, you know, though the heroes on the Naham three became our, our next target. Cause they, you know, they, they, they risked everything to get these people out of the water. So, you know, we were determined that we would then get the Naham three crew out if we could. So the you know so the the hostages on the Al Albedo one the ones that had survived the ones that the Naham three uh, pirate crew uh, the Naham three crew had had, 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 had um, you know saved. helped them from that saved that's it uh, saved were they now on the Naham three as well? Yeah, they were all there together. Okay, and so then, now they were all captured all together or held hostage together. And then eventually the pirates who were <clears throat> they you know the pirate bosses who were controlling this they took the Albedo crew ashore. And they put them in a camp ashore, and they they held them hostage ashore. Uh, the same happened to the Naham Three as well, because the, the ship became unseaworthy as well. Um, yes, and they, they dragged them ashore, wasn't it? They took the Naham Three uh, crew ashore as well, and they were held ashore. So again, they're all now held together um, uh, as almost one, because it's the same pirate clan, and it's just a load of hostages to them. Yeah. And is that so? And is that the total of of I think was it twenty six or something? Yeah, on the there were eleven on the Albedo, and then um, twenty, uh, what was it, twenty six on the Naham three. Ah, oh, okay, and, right, I and, see. And Michael, and Michael Scott Moore as well, and then they all got split up again, um, and, uh, and and separated. Oh, okay, so they got split up again, right? Yeah. And I'm sure the Albedo crew went to one place, the Naham three crew went to another, and Michael Scott Moore went back back to wherever he was being held. Right. See, it, it, the, again, the documentary didn't mention that. And I didn't know anything about um, this American journalist either. So um, I, I'd like to ask you a bit more about that as well. Um, you mentioned sort of they, um, obviously, they, uh, um, they, were, they were being tortured on there. Um, some of the examples were, well, actually, I'll let you talk about some of the examples. What sort of, um, what, what were some of the more horrific ones that you were hearing about what was going on? Um, or were you hearing them at the time or did you only hear them afterwards? 
Um, no, we were, you know, one of the one of the techniques of, of the pirates was to torture the crew while they were on the phone to somebody. I mean, usually they do that. Um, they torture them on the phone to the owner in order to persuade the owner to pay up. Um, and when there was no owner, they would uh, they would call their families and, uh, and wow. torture them on the phone. Um, and, you know, when when I was talking to them, there was this you know, ever present threat that they were going to kill them. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it makes the negotiations quite, quite difficult, which, which is why having an independent negotiator, somebody who's, um, you know, not immune to, to the, the threat, but, um, you know, who has a different objective, isn't um, so influenced by, by the threat, and, you know, often makes a much better deal. Um, and so, but you know, having them threaten uh, threaten the guys was you know was awful. I mean, one of my best memories it was a the bosun of the Albedo, so like the guy in charge of the crew, because uh, the captain, I mean, the, all the officers who were, were they paid a ransom, but their families paid, and off they went. So the bosun was the guy who was left in charge, and they you know used to hang him upside down over the water tank, you know, the thing they used to swim in, and, and beat him beat him with a bar um, hanging upside down. Um, they also hung people over the side until they were, you know, almost drowning. Um, so pretty awful stuff. You know, I don't have much, you know, I've got to know a lot of the pirates quite well, but I don't have any sympathy with any of them. You know, I, you know, I would do my utmost to make sure they, they were put in jail and, and get what they deserved. What they did to some of these people was absolutely despicable. Yeah, no, it's, uh, yeah, I didn't know that. I mean, some of the ones, um, that you didn't even mention there. I know one of them, uh, the psychological sort of torture that they did with the, um, where they would line them up and, or, or they'd uh, line up one of them and, and they'd aim the gun at them, but it would be an empty gun. And so they'd shoot it. So they had the clicking sound, uh, mm. but they, they wouldn't obviously shoot them. Um, but it'd give them that psychological, like you think that you've just been shot when you hear it. It's like in the movies when, when you know, a gun's about to go off, they click it and they've forgotten to load it. It's... Uh, it, the the psychology i mean i know no one can really imagine what that's like but you you for a second there you you think you're gonna die uh, and you almost do die in a way because he did shoot he did uh you know click or he pulled back on the trigger um but obviously it was it was all a sort of a psychological element to to get them in, in many of these cases in, in many of these cases um the hostages all thought they were going to die. You imagine after four and a half years of this sort of treatment, um, you know, as the Albedo crew went through, you know, they thought their lives were over. They, they thought they were never going, go, never going home. That one by one they were going to die. You know, if they weren't killed by the pirates, they were going to die of sickness and uh, uh, and whatever. They, you know, they never really thought they were going home. So part of what we, you know, what we did was to. To, to make them have hope. So, you know, in, in, in providing that hope, we, we would provide, we would send in medical supplies or try and buy food that would get to the pirates. But the, the pirates would only feed the hostages when they, when they could. You know, I, I, people have often heard me say that, you know, when they could feed their goats, um, you know, they'd feed the hostages. So, um, uh, but the idea of providing, you know, providing those sort of things would was to make them think and that there was somebody out there who did care about them, who did know they were there, and was doing something to uh, to, to to get them out. 
Um, you know, one of the number of, one of the other things that we did was when we negotiated a deal with the with the with the pirates, we made uh, we made them sign a contract, and um, the witnesses to that contract were the hostages. They we made them sign the deal as well, so they knew, you know, a deal had been done, and they were at some stage they were going to go home and give them hope. Oh, so that's like. Uh... Because obviously the contract isn't legally binding, but it's sort oh, of... Oh, no, moral, not at all. Yeah, it's a moral sort of... Or, uh, is moral, yeah. It's, yeah, like you said, it's give them hope and, and make them push on just a little bit further in, in the hope that someone is out there sort of trying to save them. But you want the pirates to, you know, you, you, you want to tie them into a deal and, and, and you know, we talk about, well, not sure they know what honour is, but, you know, if you honor your side of the deal, we'll honor our side of the deal and get you the money that you want. You know, you'll, you'll, you're going to get paid. Um, but in return, you know, we want these guys alive, alive and well. So, um, you know, introducing them to honor um, was an interesting concept too. Yeah, no, uh, I, I don't think they did have any honor. I, I remember again in the documentary, Leslie Edwards talking about how he was on the phone and Leslie Edwards, a reminder, it was the negotiator and he was on the phone to, to, the, to the pirates and he was like, why don't you guys have some sort of moral decency and, and you should let these guys go. Uh, um, you know, these, these guys have families and, and, and they have friends and they have people that they have to look after. And the, the, the pirates response was none of them are Somalians. Why would you care? Well, they're, they're nothing for us. And, it was like, and, and you could see sort of the face in Leslie Edwards when he was saying the story. It was like, like I, I, just, I couldn't believe it. You know, they're still humans. What well, I don't know what they were talking about, but that that just sort of went to show that there was you couldn't play on the idea of morality. With them. They didn't care about morality; they cared about money, and they wanted the ransom money. Um, In the end, it's all about money. Um, yeah, it and, is. And they, you know, but you know, the trick, and, and you know, one of the things that Leslie Edwards is very good at is making the pirates understand that we're there to try and give them what they want. They're going to get what they want, but you have to give us what we want too. Mm. Um, um, and you know, you have to you have to work with us, um, and you'll get what you want. Um, and uh, you know, that's the trick to getting the, you know, getting the negotiations going. We're there. On, we're there on your side. Mm. I, 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 I want to take a quick break from that because in a few weeks or in the first few weeks of sort of this um, this mission, private mission that you decided to launch, um, you ended up suffering a heart attack. Um, uh, what what was what was that like? Um, having well, was that your first? Was that the first time you'd suffered something like that? Um, and how did you sort of recover from that? It was a you know. Um, you know, a fit, active soldier. Um, you know, maybe I was getting on a bit, but um, you know, so a heart attack out. You know, was a heart attack was out of the blue, and uh, um, it was you know it was due to the pressure. You know, I was handling the initial negotiation, the early negotiations on the Albedo on my own. Um, I'd had you know some problems with a guy who'd offered us money, and then turned out to be a complete fraud. Um, and that you know, I'd made a deal with the pirates that I couldn't honour, um, and the, the you know the pressure was the pressure was just too much, and um, you know I had a I had a massive uh, uh, heart attack. Um, luckily, at the time, I was with some guys from the FBI who were pretty swift and and, and got me to a hospital in Nairobi quickly. Um, but normally, from this title, it wasn't really a heart attack; it was called a, an aortic dissection, and normally, you know, that kills you. Um, 
and you know I'm very lucky that uh, I'm still here and, and pure coincidence an Indian surgeon um, was also out in Nairobi from the UK and uh, one of the world's experts in this this surgery and um, managed to patch me up so um, wow. you know pretty lucky um, yeah very lucky there yeah it's like all the all the cards lined up for you there apart from obviously getting the heart attack um, so, you know, and a lot of people tell me, you know, well, enough's enough. You know, you've, you, you know, the writing's on the wall. You, you nearly died doing this. Um, you need to, you need, you need to leave it, and somebody else will do it. But you know, that's that's not possible. We already discovered that nobody else was going to do it. So um, the recovery package was, you know, getting back on my feet and getting back to the negotiations and getting these guys out. So. Uh, I actually recovered pretty quickly um, from it. Um, my son's a physio, so my son was out was out with me, and um, and you know combination of my son and, uh, um, and 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 my wife, and you know I got to you know I got back up on my feet very quickly. What sort of impact was this? Uh, I know you said obviously you this was before um, the likes of Leslie Edwards had gotten involved um uh, what was the sort of impact what's what sort of impact did this sort of have on your on your family life and your relationship because obviously you, you're stressed you know you just had a heart attack now um you're doing this all on your own what sort of impact did it have on your your relationships well you know without you know without telling your listeners you know too much of a long story um you know i i got divorced immediately after it and um, um, after the heart attack, yeah, um, and uh, uh, so um, actually, it was great. You know, it clarified a lot of things. You know, it sorted out a, a lot of things, and you know, um, got back to got back to reality. You know, I have a you know, I, a, um, I'm remarried to uh, my wife is Kenyan, and. Uh, uh, I have two great uh, Kenyan daughters or adopted girls and um, and uh, you know it sort of focuses like it focused life a lot too on what was important what wasn't um, and you know being happy in yourself was one of those things and having a mission was another um, and getting these guys out was and, and so you know it you know I, I still think it speeded up the recovery hugely yeah no i mean it, it's it, it is incredible so you've gone through so much and you, you you still persevered on um and and so we end up you end up getting back onto it obviously you get the um uh, lawyers from london and, and others involved um and you're getting also donations for the ransom um uh, to, to get paid as well um what was the sort of what was the max maximum amount that you'd made was it all given straight to the pirates at the end or or was some of it kept for something else or? Um, no, I mean, it, it, I, raising money is quite difficult. You'd think that with pe people would be with so much on the line that, you know, getting money would be quite easy, um, mm. but it's not. Um, and, you know, with the, uh, the stages of the Albedo negotiation, the pirates wanted about 900,000 um, after we'd negotiated it down quite a lot, you know, and we had, you know, we, at the most, we had a couple of hundred thousand. That's all we had to offer. Um, and, you know, we'd already had one false start with this donor who'd offered us money and then turned out to be a complete liar. Um, so, you know, we had very little money. Um, 
and uh, so there was never anything left over. Um, every little penny was used um, to to either pay the ransom or to to, to fund the logistics of uh, you know of, of rescuing the crew. You know, getting a getting an aircraft into Somalia, chartering an aircraft, you know, all of the bits and pieces that go with it and all the people you have to, uh, you have to get support from, um, you know, cost a great deal of money. Um, but if you were doing, if somebody was doing this commercially, they would be charging, you know, the insurance company or, or whoever or the com company or country a huge amount of money. Um, I like to think that, um, you know, we've managed to do it for relatively, um, low amounts and uh, uh and all of it's been used to get the people people free yeah um i this is sort of where i got really confused with the documentary and i think it i i think it's sort of clear now because now i know that this uh there was two ships the albeda and uh the, the naham three um because I, I read somewhere about um there was a um a, 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 a member of the crew his name was aman was given a phone okay so was that the albeda then yes right yeah. okay Aman, so the Naham, Aman, yeah or okay yeah Aman was one of the he was a very young boy at the time um on the on the albedo um a young uh, a young seaman um and uh but he he was very good at communicating with people and he you know he struck up a relationship with the pirates uh he you know he used to do the cooking um and uh you know he was somebody the pirates trusted and uh so we were able to you know we able to use him in the end to make the deal that we did yeah i mean, i remember when i was reading that i i just cuz he was it, it, it spoke about uh, in in the i think it was uh, it was a uh, it was it was on the, it was on a website and it was talking about how a man had he was he was chewing something called cat i think um and which is like it gives you sort of a drug like sensation um and he was chewing that with the pirates are you do you know how he managed to strike up a relation these are his captors this is see in my mind i'm thinking these are your captors number one how are you actually managing to not wanting to just strangle them and number two why are the captors happy to go oh yeah let's have some cat you know it's like going oh you want you want a cigarette and smoking with the people that you're holding hostage it doesn't make sense to me um, surely they just kept on the side and not allowed to speak to the rest of the pirates but think of it a bit differently um you know you've been you're you're in a in a you know desert village in the middle of nowhere um you you've been held hostage four and a half years um you know you're going to have a relationship with uh, with your 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 kidnappers um you know it's not like some of these other kidnaps you know people held in solitary confinement and blindfolded and shackled um uh, this was a this had gone on a long time four and a half years and so you know there was a relationship they were held in yes they were held in a in a hut altogether um but they were allowed out and they uh, and the and the the pirates, you know, if they, they they used him as a servant, and so um, you know, and he was, it, it's about survival, and you do whatever you have to do for to to survive. Um, you'll you'll see there's um recently as an, an an Italian lady a nurse was kidnapped, um, in Kenya and taken into Somalia, um, you know, and she survived and and. It, it, she wasn't held that long, but she converted to Islam in, in that period. Um, 
and um, you know it was a survival mechanism. But you know she converted and 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 fully believes. Um, you do what you have to do to survive, and so if you can have a relationship with the pirates, that's what Aman and the and the others did. And you know they had such a good relationship with the pirate leader that they were able to come up with this idea that you know maybe the pirate leader could be bribed. Um, yeah. And that's what led to this very uh, unorthodox solution uh, that happened in this case. Not one that you would remotely recommend in a, if you were a pro professional negotiator um, uh, uh, or uh, in, in time to get people free. But, you know, we thought long and hard about, you know, was this something that we could go with and, and support and pay for, you know, um, and, you know, in, but in the end it worked and we got them free um, yeah uh, so w w was was it was the same team on your side was the same team working on both the albedo case and the naham three case yeah there isn't any other team it's me yeah. and there's Edwards and the lawyers and that's it you're both working on them so you were negotiating with two sets of pirates at the same time yeah well in, in actually um several sets of pirates because we had you know the other other cases going on as well wow how many uh, are there altogether that you were sort of, in terms of hostages, how many were there? Would you 191. 191? Yeah. Wow. Over that, and, over, over that entire period, you know, the last bunch of guys we released were three Iranians um, last year. That, that needs to be talked about more. 191. And so, um, um, how much sort of, what was the ransom total for them all? For 191, oh, I've, I've never, I've never actually worked that out. Um, not all of them required, you know, the the detailed negotiations like um, the Albedo. Some we just picked up and rescued because somebody had freed them on the ground, and we just went in and, and rescued them and brought them out and got them home. Um, not all of the cases needed full, you know, a full, um, you know, negotiated release. Um, but 191 in total. That's crazy, that. Like, um, I mean... It's I, something I'm hugely proud of, you know. Yeah, I, no, I bet. The, the number comes to me just like that. Yeah, no, I bet. Proud. No, I, I remember you, I, you, you... I remember at the end of the documentary, uh, your emotion just from the Naham 3 one. Um, and that was... I mean, I say that's just 20-odd, but that's still amazing. But 191, that's, that's the crazy. Naham I, was, the Naham 3 was, you know, was the biggest, the biggest group. Um, yeah. And the one, whilst we in the documentary that we didn't, we don't say how much we paid, but you know it was quite a lot of money, the biggest amount that we we paid. Are you not allowed to talk about how much you paid? Um, it's not that we're not allowed. You know, you you have to do a lot of things to 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 get these free, and uh, the people who donated the money don't want to be, you know, don't want, don't want to be known, and. Uh, um and you know i'm not sure we want people to know exactly how we did it mm, no yeah no i completely understand that i want to talk a bit more about a man as well just the, the sort of um story of of because so you managed to or, or your team managed to get uh you how did you sort of hear about this aman character how did you know that aman was developing this relationship with the pirate leader and the pirates on the, did they did they tell you or how, how did that come about um the, the, they gave him access to a, access to a phone, um, and um, he we uh, he uh, 
the pirate leader gave them a hidden phone, which is why we knew the pirate leader was susceptible to being to being bribed. And so they had a hidden phone. So we were able to communicate with him um, directly. Why did the pirate leader give him a phone? Because he wanted us to do a deal with them, with him. Oh, so so was the so did the pirate leader go, listen, you call up these guys, mm. tell them Basically. that this what I want. So it was the pirate leader who first thought of being... Because yeah. they, they weren't getting their... Uh, you know, a, a, a piracy um, act has a series of investors, um, and the investors are the big men, the Mr. Bigs, who put up the money, um, and they expect to get, you know, a big return for their money. Um, and all these negotiations were going on. You know, they, it was obvious they weren't going to get big money. And, you know, even though the, the, the pirate leader, um, you know, would have got, gotten a fairly decent share, it wasn't as much as the, you know, the, the kingpins and the investors. And by the time all the money's divvied out, they're not going to get very much. So the pirate leader saw the writing on the wall and thought, well, you know, is there a way I can get, I, you know, I can get a decent amount of money and, 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 and stiff everybody else. So he yeah. was up and, then, and we took advantage. Yeah. So, I mean, when you, when you first heard of this sort of, almost, I, I use the word corrupt in inverted commas because, you know he's a pirate but when you heard of, yeah. yeah when you heard of the the more corrupt or the the double ended corrupt um uh, the pirate did you think we've got something here we can work on this guy let's like essentially try and essentially do the plan that he's talking about and get him the money um because the plan was that he would take all, all the ransom money in a certain way how was how what was that sort of um what was the, what was the sort of original plan there? How would you get him? How would how would you make it out so that he would get all the money and the rest of them wouldn't find out? Well, your first question is, you know, what did you think? And I I, I thought this was the stupidest idea I've ever heard of. Um, you know, it uh, it was relayed to Leslie Edwards first, and you know, when we discussed it, oh, this, is, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You know, we we've already had so many things go wrong in this case. You know, this is just daft. Um, I knew. Um, and then the plan was that um, he was going to take the money. He was going to provide sleeping pills that uh, were going to be mixed into the food of the of the pirate guards um, and they'd all go to sleep. Um, and then when they all went to sleep, um, the, the crew, he, he would facilitate the crew escaping out the back of the hut. Uh, he'd provide somebody um, that would then meet them with a vehicle that would take them to uh, meet up with one of our one of our people um and you know it was just fanciful you know it was the stupidest thing i've ever heard of um you know just things just don't work like that and drugging people you know just just you know something out of a movie um, um and yet we didn't have any other solution this had gone on for a long long time we didn't have the nobody was giving us any money we didn't have another solution. So in the end, we agreed to, to give it a try. But honestly, I don't think any of us thought it was going to work. I and mean, then, well, initially and then, you didn't, did it? And then when we did it, exa yeah, exactly. When we did it, um, you know, it was all arranged. Uh, Leslie flew out to Nairobi and stayed, was staying with me. We, we made all the arrangements, you know, and, and arranging something this, like this is a you know, massive military operation. You need, you need permission from presidents and overflights. You need to charter aircraft. You need to pay guys to drive into some of the worst areas of Somalia to go and pick them up. Um, a whole host of things, massive arrangements we, we made. Um, 
And so the night when it was supposed to happen, um, we didn't hear anything, nothing happened. We didn't hear a word. Um, all went deathly quiet. Um, and so we thought, yeah, told you, told you so. It was never going to happen. So everybody packed up and went home. Um, and then we heard that um, the, the pirates had been chewing this mirror that you spoke about. Um, this narcotic that they they chew you used to be able to get it in london um and um and uh, the mirror the narcotic um you know counted uh, counted the sleeping pills so they didn't go to sleep so there was no opportunity to es escape so the whole thing you know fell through how did they end up escaping did they try it again yeah um they um they the 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 pirate captain provided more sleeping pills um they tried it several occasions and then eventually when there was um there was there was no mirror um it worked perfectly and they went to sleep um of course what they hadn't done was tell anybody so i'm there happily sleeping in my bed in nairobi and um um and i get a phone call and this voice says we're out and it was it was the bosun um um and uh, who was an uh, Iranian, um, said, we're free. Well, what the hell do you mean you're free? You cut. What do you mean How you're did free? you get free? Well, I, you know, I, 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 my, my language was probably not quite so polite. You know, what, what do you mean you're free? Um, well, you know, it worked, we're out. What do you mean you're out? Uh, well, we're out in the bush somewhere. Um, up on the hill there, there's a, um, there's a radio mast. That's about all we can see. It's very dark. Um, you know, you need to come and get us. What the hell? You know, in the middle of Somalia, you know, in the middle of nowhere. What do you mean I need to come and get you? Um, and you're, you know, your mind is racing. I'm, you know, I've, I've woken up from a deep sleep. What, what am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? Um, and then, you, you know, you slow down and, you know, maybe it's the military in, in you um, comes back and you start thinking logically. And, you know, I phoned my contact in, in, in Somalia and he, very good bloke. Um, he immediately got hold of a few mates in the right area who started to drive towards them. He, at the same time, he mounted a, um, you know, a team to come from 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 further up country to come in and try and find them. And um, you know, cutting a long story short, they found them. Um, when they were initially found, the the, uh, the 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 hostages thought that they'd been grabbed by another group of pirates, and they were very afraid and they thought they'd be recaptured and they'd probably be killed um and then eventually um uh, no 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 it's from john you know john um you know oh my god you know we've been rescued and the, then then my friend in uh who'd driven actually came with the second group of convoy and uh and uh whose name is um uh omar and uh and he said, you know, John sent me, we're going home. John will be here tomorrow. And, uh, you know, he packs them up and takes them away, um, stops and they have a meal. I've got a lovely picture. I think in Colin Freeman's book, there's a lovely picture of them sitting in the bush, having, uh, you know, having spaghetti on the, on the, on oh. the ground. And then, uh, then he took them and they went, they went to what you know, regard as a hotel and <laughs> not really much of a hotel, but a hut. Um, and gave them some fresh clothes um we couldn't you know we couldn't mount an operation to extract them that quickly uh but uh you know i i was flew in the following day and 
with a team, but of course, Leslie and everybody else were, you know, miles away. I had to you know, mount this on my own. Um, and uh, with a bit of help, the UN provided an aircraft and um, we went in and picked them up. Um, you know, when you said earlier on about, you know, you we flew into an airstrip and the strip airstrip was surrounded by armed people and guys in pickups with guns on the back and you know, it was all a bit all a bit alarming um and then you know you step off the aircraft um in this case was met by the vice president of uh, of this part of somalia somebody i knew um and uh you know you you, you realize it's going to be all, all right but i wanted to shove the the president and everybody out of the way and get to the get to the get to the crew because it was you know a very emotional um very emotional meeting mm. so that was um, the Albedo crew, um, uh, and so they've gotten out. How did you end up? Because uh, we have this corrupt pirate um, who's who's interesting me right now because you've got this corrupt pirate leader who's now got him out, and so obviously because it hadn't been planned, how did the where did the corrupt pirate get his money then? Because no one's got the money to give to him right now because it, this was all quite spontaneous. Oh, we paid him. We, oh, paid okay. him, we paid him the first time, you know, we paid him um, 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 the first time round. When it, when oh, it went. right. So he'd already got, so he'd already got he, the money. He got the money. So that's why, you know, that was even, you know, we thought the whole thing had fallen through. You know, we paid oh. him and nothing had, nothing had happened. Um, we paid him. Yeah, already. Ah, okay. How did you, so how did you end up paying him then? Did you drop it like the, with the parachute or I, I'm assuming it's not my transfer. Now you're asking all these technical questions. Um, but you know there's a uh, you know there's a hawala system of money transfers and so on so we were able to pay him oh so it is bank transfer basically yeah wow so okay i mean at that point why didn't the pirate leader just go oh well i might as well just go back on my word and just keep him i've got the money yeah so what do you think happened to him i'm assuming he ran away and yeah yeah he got well, he got well, he, he got killed he was killed by the investors. Oh, okay, okay. So, what? So, did he run away after the first time when it failed, or did? No, he... no. He was no. He um. He you know he <clears throat> he provided the the sleeping pills the second time. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he just didn't provide any you know anybody to meet them or any you know trap. But they were you know they had to leg it on foot um, on their own. Um, so uh, he, he and he didn't tell us. You know, so this whole thing came as a total surprise. Uh, but you know, in a, in a way, he honoured his he honoured the deal uh, that he made. honoured his deal. Yeah, uh, he honoured the deal, and then of course he ran away, um, and his masters found him and killed him. Wow, wow. So um, at that, I mean, at that point again, like I said, you 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 successfully managed to get the hostages of Albert. How long? How many years did that one take? They were there. They were held what four and a half years. Four and a half years, and on the so was the Naham three straight after that one. Um, no, um, we we did another ship after that, um, a Thai fishing boat after that called the Prantley uh, 13, 14. Um, so we we rescued four Thai crewmen um, uh, that had, were in a similar position. They were held ashore. Nobody was willing to pay, um, and we eventually. You know, we 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 were given some money and we got them free. Yeah, with the obviously with the the albedo, it was a lot more spontaneous. You didn't really 
you almost didn't really have time to sort of be anxious and think about thinking about it over and over again because it all happened. I'm sure you were anxious when you heard someone call you up and go, I'm free. But it's like, because it was all spur of the moment, you didn't really have the time. But with the Naham 3, it was a lot more organised. It was a lot more orchestrated, wasn't it? Like in terms of um, you would, you know, drop in the money, the uh, hostages would be let go, you'd go pick them up. During that whole process, before the process has really you, you, you sort of got the plan and you're now going to start the plan of getting these guys free. What's going through your mind there? Are you again thinking this, uh, this is going to fail or, um, oh my God, you know, how, how are you sort of going? What's, what's, what's your mental process throughout the whole thing? I mean, primarily you think, you know, this is just so damn complicated. Um, you know, how am I going to make all this work? Um, but, um, you know, it, uh, you know, I'm lucky that I have a lot of very good contacts in Somalia from the work that I was doing, um, you know, um, for the UN and for my friend Ambassador Mahiga. You know, I was very lucky and I had a lot of contacts at very high level, you know, presidents and prime ministers and, and so on. Um, so, you know, I was quite well known uh, and, you know, I had you know, a lot of people around who I could, you know, call on or coerce into, into helping me uh, and to make things happen. You know, when, when I needed overflight clearance or landing clearance in an area where you wouldn't normally get, you know, it was a, it was a direct call to the, you know, the, the, the president of that regional state that, you know, that fixed it. Um, so even though things were complicated and you worried that they were complicated, um, you know, you, you find a way through it and you find a way to make it happen. But these deals are terribly, terribly complex. Um, and, you know, like in the Naham 3 case where you you drop a large amount of money by parachute, um, you wonder if you, you know, it just, um, you know, ever you're ever going to see the hostages, you know, the money's just going to be taken. Mm. Um, and that's part of the skill of a negotiator like Leslie, um, who, um, who um, you know, who done this quite a lot and uh, knows how to create the, the right atmosphere there's there's something about leslie edwards that's not come out in any of these books or any of these stories um you know i told you um i told you right at the beginning that uh, i was a young boy 18 um joined the army and went off to the military academy at sandhurst if i could show you a picture um the black and white picture of us you know finishing our training and passing passing off um marching in our you know best uniforms um there's a picture of me at the back and then four guys down from me is Leslie Edwards. No he, way. He and I were in the army together. We joined as cadets together. And then we never saw each other. The first time I heard about him was when the lawyer said, we've got this professional negotiator that we'll get to help you. And his name's Ledby. I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. Um, and uh, he'd left the army at a fairly early stage and started doing this hostage negotiation stuff. But we were... We've been cadets together. Yeah, that's crazy, isn't it? How it went all yeah. full circle. You ended up working working together to rescue 191 one, or he, one hostages. Um, he, describe, he describes it, you know, what the hell are two old farts like, you know, at 60 something running around, running around Somalia like, you know, young young men from the SAS. I mean, it's, it's weird because it's like you almost were doing the job that you both trained to do together and you were both in the British Army you would like so you were like you said you're running around in Somalia that's something you don't really do in your 60s maybe you might do when you're in the army um and you guys ended up doing it um uh, much later in your life Leslie Edwards yeah he fascinated me with 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 what I um saw in the documentary and then I ended up doing my own research on him because I was hoping to 
try and find an email address for him or something like that because I, I'd love to speak to him about like sort of negotiating or whatever. Um, but I couldn't find anything out there. Like when I put in your name, I could find it. I couldn't find anything on Leslie Edwards like, apart from like one or two things, one or two websites with his name on them, but no sort of uh, way to uh, email him or get in contact with him. No social medias, nothing. Um, he, he's very deliberately, um, you know, very private person. Um, yeah. And, you know, um, that's, um, you know, that's, you know, that he needs for, for his trade. I mean, he, he doesn't just do these, uh, these cases that, uh, that we're talking about. Um, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people say to me, oh, you talk about this too much, you know, there's too, there's too much visibility. Um, but uh, we decided earlier on, early on that we would, um, we would use publicity to, uh, to plead the case of these guys. Um, also to try and attract or, or get, you know, donors to, to, to cough up money to, for us. Um, but also, you know, sent a very clear message to the pirates uh, and this is it's something I did right at the very beginning. You know, I had no idea how to contact the pirates, you know, and all knew all sorts of bad guys in Somalia, um, but no idea how to contact them directly. Um, so the answer was, and the advice, you, know, you need to put it out there. You need to put it out there in, in the media that you're willing to negotiate for these guys. And that's exactly what I did. Um, and that's, you know, how the contact started. Uh, a lot of, yeah, a lot of lunatics too. A lot of wannabes who, yeah, yeah, I've got them. Um, even some people who could, um, you hear in movies and stuff about proof of life. Well, you know, before you start negotiating, you need to have proof of life. Um, but even with that, you have to be quite careful because, you know, some some guy in the camp might have quickly taken a picture with his phone of the of the hostages and then claimed that that was the proof of life. So the proof of life has to be much more detailed and, and, and complex. You need to know it's there and then and the guy that's taken it actually knows um, and is authorized to, to, to negotiate. So proof of life is not, not such a simple, simple thing. You have to be very careful with it. Yeah, I know with the Naham 3, with the Naham 3 case, they, uh, you guys, uh, you sent them a word, like a specific word, and you ended up saying that you wanted a picture of all the hostages holding up a piece of paper with that specific word on it, just to make sure yeah. that they're all alive on that date uh, and they're all safe. Um, and I wouldn't have thought about that, but that's why that's why I wanted to see if I can get in uh, co contact with with Leslie Edwards. If John, you can like maybe put my name into uh, into Leslie Edwards' ears, and maybe he might come on the podcast. I don't know. I'd love to be able to talk to him. But I mean, I I understand completely if he if his line of work sort of prevents him um, from being able to um, do stuff like this. And like I said, I do appreciate. I said it at the beginning. I do appreciate uh, your time coming on here as well. Um, I've just got sort of a few um, more questions. Uh, you've now got an MBE, John. Um, uh, tell what, what was that like? That's pretty cool. It's got nothing to do with this. Um, oh, does it not? No, not at all. Um, we haven't actually. I mean, uh, you'll hear Colin Freeman says in his book. You know, we haven't had any recognition for for this work at all. And and you know, to be honest, not doing it for recognition either. Um, you know. Uh, the greatest recognition um, is, uh, you know, is sending these people home to their to their families. You know, given when they, you know, when they thought their life was over, they'd given up. You know, they weren't going to go home. Um, yeah. Giving people back, you know, their lives when they thought it was over, is you know, you can't do much better than that. It's a fantastic thing, and uh, 
uh, you know, it, it, it's better than anything else, any any gong or whatever, you know, it's, this is much better. So, you know, recognition's not been our thing, really. Um, but my MBE came, uh, my MBE was for something in the army um, and uh, um, something called Operation Granby. And uh, and I, I got the MBE and the honours and awards for Operation Granby. Um, and uh, um, I went to went to Buckingham Palace and got my gong, not from the Queen, um, it was actually from Prince Philip. So, um, uh, but it's still a great, still a great thrill, you know, something I'm, 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 I'm very proud of and, uh, um, and uh, it was a, a great day. Um, as an aside, um, I, 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 I was the, the defense attaché in, in the Republic of Ireland as well. And uh, in, in, People get um, MBEs and OBEs and not even knighthoods uh, who are not British citizens um, for doing, you know, doing things, um, and tends tends to be when you when you, you when you're a f foreigner, um, it's awarded by the British ambassador uh, in, in the country that you're in. So I was the defence advisor and. Um, tend to be the master of ceremonies for these things. You know, I was the only one with a smart uniform and a sword yeah. and all the gear. So I got to be the master of ceremonies for these, um, for these uh, awards. Um, so I got to, uh, I was the master of ceremonies for, for Bono um, getting his knighthood. Oh, wow. And um, Bono and The Edge, his guitar got their, got their gongs from the British ambassador and I was the master of, master of ceremonies. What was even funnier was because when Bono made his speech, um, uh, he, um, he 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 thanked me for his knighthood. Um, no, you need to be thanking the Queen for his knighthood, not me. <laughs> I was just, I was just the guy. Steve. No, no, I mean the Queen. Even, I mean the, queen. even the ambassador, you know, going, you know, I gave him the bloody award, not you. <laughs> well, I mean, you got thanks then for um, even though you have no power tonight, someone, you you still got <laughs> the thanks for it. Yeah. So I mean, fair enough. Um, just to slightly go back, um, what was it you mentioned sort of uh, you met with these guys or, or after the Albedo one and the, and the Naham 3 one? What was it like when, you know, you saw that they were finally free, uh, finally free uh, and you, you met them for the first time? You know, you'd been calling a few of them throughout the process. Um, uh, what was it like when you finally saw them? Um, when the, the Naham, when I flew into the airstrip to get the Naham 3 crew, it was again very I mean, deserted airstrip. Um, they were being held in a, not held hostage, but they were being kept for the flight in a hut at the end of the runway. Um, so I got out of the plane, being met by other people, taken across to this, this hut, opened the door, went in. And all of these, you know, the 24 guys all from, from, from Southeast Asia, um, you know, they, they look at you, some, for the first time, some white guy walks through the door. Something different, you know. It's not a Somali, not a gun with a gun. It's a, it, you know, it's a white guy in a blue shirt. And uh, um, and uh, I remember somebody saying, "Are you John?" And uh, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm John. Um, the reaction was incredible. Um, you know, I had people holding me around, people holding my legs, people hanging off my neck, people sobbing. Um, you know, it was it was quite something. I've never I've never seen anything like it uh, ever anywhere um, or since. Um, and then you know we took them back on the plane, 
one of the greatest moments um you know the pilot um announces you know on the on the on the on the Tanway, you know, um, we're leaving Somali airspace. We're just entering Kenya. Huge cheers, you know. Where, you know, they. I think it's the point when they actually know they're free. You know, they're out of Somalia um, at last, and 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 on their on their way on their way home. So, it's quite an emotional thing, and yet that flight, you know, you're not sitting around doing nothing because you're sitting there. You're producing documents and identity documents and travel documents because they don't have anything. Um, and you know, even countries, you know, countries provide you with emergency passports and so on, but they don't have pictures or anything. So you're, you know, you're taking pictures in the plane and producing and you know, producing all these documents, and then you stopping through an intermediary point where you do immigration. So you have to go through all the immigration thing. And, um, so you know, these these flight backs were flight flights back were you know were, were quite busy. So there was no chance to sort of sit back and think. Uh, have know, a glass of wine you know am i you know what's what what the hell's happened um so it's quite a busy period it's really when you get back to nairobi and you know then you're in a proper hotel and you've got fresh clothes um you've talked to your family um that's when it tends to set it set in how do you celebrate after that you've just given back you know <laughs> you can't give back life but this is the closest thing that you get you can do to giving back a life and you got really emotional in the documentary i mean i got emotional as well just watching it watching you get emotional um and and, and hearing you explain it it's the best thing that you can actually do with your life and you said that yourself how do you sort of celebrate afterwards what do you do um well it's still not over until you've got them home i mean mm-hmm. even when you're sitting in nairobi you've got all these diplomats and people you know who all want their piece of the action and you know want to be um, in some cases, they try and you know they try and take over. So as soon as the plane landed, you know they want to take your, take the host- the guys away to their embassy and so on. Um, and we we're quite strict. You know we want them to stay together. We don't force them apart. Um, you know we let them, you know get used to the idea that they're free and that they're going home. And and we do things with them. We take them for medicals. We in the Albedo case, um, you know we we took them on safari. They they said. Uh, they said uh, that when they were they were originally the ship was going to Mombasa and they wanted to go uh, they were going to go on a safari so you oh. know could we, could we still do that um, <laughs> so we we arranged for them to go on a safari um, um, Nairobi is a fantastic place it has it, a, a national park right on the edge of the city so you know my wife you know organized a big picnic and um, and we took them off uh, to look at elephants and giraffes and things and wow. then took them home but then when when they've gone um, you know it's a not an anti-climax but suddenly you know the pressure and everything is off um you know you've done it they're they're free um it doesn't last long because in in these cases there was always another group after the albedo there was the 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 prantley um the prantley 13 and then there was the naham three um which we did in fairly quick order afterwards um and then you know another long projected uh, protracted negotiation where um, you know, until we got the, t- the Iranian hostages out. Um, um, and, you know, that was a whole new different ball game. You know, working with Iran was quite interesting. And, uh, um, and there were a couple of cases that we did on our own that we that I did that weren't related to, um, to Les and the, and the other team. We did a couple of Kenyans um, that we did on our own. Why? I know, I, I know this is a bit of a weird one to ask at the end, but why did you feel like you had to do 
this and what especially you know after you've done one or two why don't you just go all right i've done one or two i've done my bit for humanity i'll let someone else deal with the rest why do why did you feel like you had to do it especially you know uh, you know when you're a lot older and are having uh, suffered a heart attack because <clears throat> because the work there wasn't anybody else there was nobody else who was going to do this i mean most people i mean other people would do it if you paid them a lot of money um you know we we were the only ones who were doing it for doing it for nothing and doing it for the you know the right the right the right reasons um and we set ourselves a target of getting all of the maritime piracy hostages out and that we wouldn't stop until they were they were all out and then you know then we would then we would sit back so um you know the last maritime piracy hostage was um, um three iranians who went home um, in August, August last year, um, Leslie negotiated the deal, and we didn't have to go and get them ourselves. We negotiated the deal, and then they were, they were e extracted by 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 others. But um, we negotiated the deal, and, and with the families to get the money, and then negotiated the deal. So that was the last of the um, of the maritime pirate hostages. So they're all free now. There aren't any more. But then, you know. Then people came along and said, you know, but John, you know, we've got there are five other hostages in Somalia and they've got nothing to do with piracy, but they're being held in Somalia. You know, there's nobody who knows more about this than you do. So, um, you know, what can you do to help? <laughs> so having thought we'd finished, um, you know, there are still people who might benefit from help from us. Um, we're not directly involved, but we are helping advise um, those who are trying to get them free. So I haven't totally given up. Yeah, you mentioned earlier on in the podcast that you're excited for this second phase of your life. Um, what's that entailing then? What have you got? What have you got planned, John? <laughs> well, I thought you know, leaving the army was phase one. Um, you know, working for the UN, um, involved in maritime security and stuff has been phase two, and I'm sort of still doing that. Um, and then phase three is um, you know retiring here to Cornwall and doing doing having some doing some fun things. What, what are you what are you getting up to these days it's a decent weather i'm sure it's really nice down in cornwall you've obviously got the g7 happening over there what are, um, what, are, what have you been up to i have a very you know very old house that's um you know not in great condition so um spending my time trying to put it uh, put it right and uh, so that we have you know somewhere nice to uh, to retire to i saw it earlier on actually when you uh, when you when you were using your phone to uh, to uh, video call me I saw the roof and I thought, you know, what? he's looking, he's living in a nice house, you know, it looks pretty decent. Maybe he was the pirate that was, uh, that was the corrupt one and just took a pocket a little at the end. Yeah, it's a nice, oh. it's a, it's a, it's a nice, I'm very lucky. It was my mum's house and um, it was built during the, between the two wars by her grand, by her father. Um, oh, wow. But, you know, when the, in wartime, the, you know, building materials were not that great um, and not very available. So there are, you know, it has huge problems with damp mm. And, and stuff so which way but it's a great place you know i'm looking out of the window now and i can see boats um you know, i can see the water so um it's a it's a great place to a great place to live i bet i know yeah no like i said it does look nice and uh cornwall, cornwall in general uh, looks like a really nice place to live um john you've lived uh, a pretty incredible life um and i know you, you i know you said you didn't you didn't do any of it for any sort of recognition but um uh I'm sure hopefully through the book and, and maybe even through this podcast, you'll get a bit more recognition. 191 people 
um, that you gave there, or you and, and your team gave back, um, 191 lives you gave back to people, which is just incredible. The documentary, uh, I can't wait to actually uh, read the book as well. Um, I'll leave the uh, links in the description for, for both of them because it, it definitely is something that everyone needs to check out. Um, and it's something that, you know, I consider myself as someone that sort of tries to stay as up to date as possible on the news and politics or whatever. And it's something that I'd never even heard of. I knew sort of piracy was a problem. I knew kidnappings were, were an issue, but um, the scale um, of which they're an issue is, is something that I didn't even realise. Um, and so it's been an absolute pleasure having you on, John. I have got one, one final question to you. What it's advice? Going to be one of your trick questions, isn't it? It's going no, to be no, one it's of not those. any of the trick questions, don't you? Or although it might be, it might be actually. What advice would you give to um, if you could go back to your twenty-year-old self? What advice would you give to twenty-year-old uh, John? Oh, easy. I um, mean, you know, go out, go out and live your life to the fullest. You know, you know, go and have as much fun and as much adventure as you possibly can, uh, you know, whilst you can, you know, get out there and, and live and see life, you know, don't sit here glued to, where it is, glued to this thing, you know, get out there glued and to the phone, yeah. get out there and see life. And that is it for this week's episode of the Me, Myself and Hopefully You podcast. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did uh, because of what an episode it was. Thank you so much for John for taking the time to come on. Um, I will leave the link in uh, the description uh, to the documentary I watched uh, about um, one of the ships that um, John Steed negotiated uh, with the pirates of and also the book all about um mr john steeds uh, um piracy crisis uh, cases uh, by colin freeman um but other than that uh, make sure you follow us if you enjoyed the episode leave a review as well if you don't mind and share us on your social media um i'm always looking uh, to uh, get new listeners and uh, i think this episode would be a great start so if you could share it i'd really appreciate it and, and tag us um at mmhy podcast on instagram um but other than that thank you so much for listening uh don't forget to um watch out for next week's episode where i sit with a um well i sit with a gentleman uh, and we have a chat about investing all about investing so if you're a fan of the adulting 101 app, um, episode then you'll love this investing episode it's all about investing in the uk um not necessarily what you should invest in but why you should invest the whole process of investing how you can get started with investing and all that jazz so make sure you stick around for that but other than that thank you so much for listening have a great week until next time